So, what do you want to hear first? The good news or the bad news? No, seriously, like when you have to hear good news and bad news or somebody comes up to you, what do you want to hear first, the good news and the bad news? Which one do you normally pick? Okay, yeah. Did you know that like scientists and psychologists have tried to objectify and study and figure out the right answer about what you should say or how this works? Uh, So writing for Inc.com, Jeff Hayden found this, quote, according to a 2013 study published in the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, Most people with good and bad news to share prefer to share the good news first. So when you you have to be the the mouthpiece, you want to share the good news first. He goes on, the the researchers call it priming emotion protection. He says, it's a fancy way of saying, maybe this won't hurt so bad if I ease into it. But the the same study shows that most recipients of good and bad news, prefer to hear the bad news first. That is, when we're going to hear it, when we're the recipients of the message, we want to hear the bad news first, if only because he continues that it reduces the worry factor. That is, if I know the bad news is coming, I'll just be thinking about that and be less likely to pay serious attention to the good news, end quote. But isn't that interesting? If you think about it, though, it's not too surprising. If you have good and bad news to share... Uh, you typically want to start with the good stuff to soften the landing of how bad the bad news is going to be. But if you're the one receiving the news, if you're like me, you just want to get the bad news over with. So then you can get ready to hear the good stuff or to take some hope and encouragement. Well, in this letter, Paul starts with the bad news. Or excuse me, he starts with the good news. (laughs) Paul starts with the good news. And we started looking at that last time. As he begins, he starts with, who we are in Jesus Christ. He starts with how God sees us, how God has so overwhelmingly favored us and blessed us because he's preparing the way for what, a softer landing for the bad news? Well, sort of, but not quite. He's not merely just buttering us up to then lay the smack down. It's not what he's doing here. Rather, he's relaying the proper gospel foundation. So that you hear the criticism right. So you hear these bad things, the things you probably don't want to find out about yourself, but you can be honest with them because you've heard them in the right way. Another way to say it, he's got to say this. I have some hard things to tell you in this letter, Corinthians. And maybe the Lord now through his word, I've got some hard things to tell you as we study this book together. But know this first, I'm saying it out of love. And most of all, know this, Christ loves you supremely, even as, he has, even as he has to say these things to us. And so these opening verses in 1 Corinthians, they lay the foundation, they strengthen our assurance, our confidence, that we really stand right with God because of Christ. So then what can happen? We can actually face our sin. We don't have to hide it. It hasn't compromised where we are with Christ. When we see our sin, we don't have to, as Christians, feel rejected or hopeless. But what this book is saying, no, from our strong foundation, we can actually hear with open ears. We can hear with hearts that are ready to be warned, yes, challenged, but then changed. So we started this last week in this uh, this opening in 1 Corinthians, but it's this, take courage. Take courage in how Christ has favored you. He so overwhelmingly just graciously blessed you if you're in Christ. 
And you need to take hold of that, and you need to remember that as we keep walking through this book so you can be ready because you're going to be confronted in this book. You're going to be challenged in this book. We're going to find ways. You're going to need to change to live more like Christ in this book. But we can't get the order mixed up. You've got to start with the gospel good news. That's how we can face the bad news and be changed. So with that, the first thing, and this is what we looked at last week, about the church's favored calling is many mercies to us. How do we strengthen ourselves? How do we take courage in that? You've got to first embrace how Christ sees you. And that's what we looked at last week in those first three verses. And this is the astonishing thing. You need to, even as we hear all these rebukes, all of these criticisms to us, you need to just go back and remember, but how does Christ see me? Where do I stand with him? What's my identity? Because again, that's where he opens the letter. Look at verse 2. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, we talked a lot about that, in Christ Jesus. And more than this, called to be saints. This is what he calls you. You are called holy. That's what a saint is. It's a holy one. He calls you that. He has sanctified you in Christ that way. He has holified you. That can maybe be confusing to us because, you know, in church history, as people walked after Jesus, some of them seem to have picked up this name Saint along the way, right? Like Saint Peter and Saint Paul and Saint Augustine, even Saint Valentine, okay? And it makes it seem like that word Saint is just tied to the bestest of Christians, the most holy of the holy. That's not the presentation that the Bible gives us for this word, this title, saint. Everyone in Christ here is equally saintly, if you're in Christ. Equally then loved, equally adopted, equally embraced, equally made His. You are as holy ones because of Christ for you. So that's true. No matter how much you need to be confronted no matter how much you need to be exposed and your sin will be as we walk through this book. But if you're in Christ, your holy status, calling, never changes. And why not? Because it rests on Christ, not on you. And He hasn't changed. That gives us the spiritual assurance we need so we can be honest about where we fall short so we can start to change. So we got to start there. You need to embrace how Christ sees you. But second, you need to leverage how Christ gifts you, verses 4 to 7. You need to know all the blessings he's given you, and you need to leverage those to strengthen your soul and be prepared to change. Because he has overwhelmingly, generously blessed us and gifted us in Christ. And when we're talking about gifts, we're not talking about nice little treasures. But we're talking about gifts that are tools, These are equipment and resources to help you on the walk after Jesus on this sojourn to heaven. So as we open, as Paul opens now in verse 4, you know, we tell this to our kids. When they give you some nice gift, what are you supposed to say afterward? Thank you. Well, that's where he begins. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. We're going to talk more about that, but just note it always. But who does he thank? He thanks God. Why? Because of the grace of God that's given you in Christ Jesus. This whole opening in verse 4, it's just filled with grace. 
What is grace? Undeserved riches given at Christ's expense to his people. These were not earned. These were not purchased by them. They were purchased for them. They were given. It comes in undeserved. And it's overwhelming in this passage. When he says, give thanks, that's based on the word grace. And he's doing it always because of the grace of God. And then that was given to you, which is also related to being gifted something, of course. It's all about gift. It's all about God giving. The point is, it's not about them deserving any of it. Why have the Corinthians been so blessed, so favored? It's not because they prayed so hard to get the gifts. It's not because they had such great spiritual insight compared to other Christians, so God knew to bless them especially. Notice, Paul's not patting the Christians on the back, oh, good job, you got all of these spiritual gifts. It wasn't because you had this great passion for God, you were so radical. So then he gave you all of these things. No, what's the whole point? It comes by grace. It's a gift. And we've touched on this before, but again, think about the Corinthians. They've been so blessed, they've been so graced, but they still got all kinds of issues, don't they? If you're not sure, just read ahead this afternoon before the Super Bowl to watch my favorite team. Anyway, no comment there. Yeah, they got all kinds of issues, but that doesn't deny that there is a supernatural work of grace at hand in the Corinthians, despite all of their warts and failings and otherwise. What's the point? Christ is at work. And why is he at work? Not because the Corinthians deserved it, but because God's gracious. And so that's why, who gets the thanks for it? I thank my Corinthians. No, I thank my God, because he is a gracious God. And then as we continue, it might then surprise us with how charitable he is, how abundant he is in his generosity. Look at verse 5 now. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, in every way. But notice that word, enriched. They are, spiritually speaking, rolling in the dough of spiritual gifts. God has not been stingy with his mercy to these people. He has not been reluctant with his grace, holding back, seeing, well, I'll give you a little bit, and then we'll see how you do that, and maybe I'll give you a little more. No, he's just pouring out his blessings and gifts upon them. And again, will do the Corinthians use these gifts all too well? No. Actually, the curious thing is they're even going to divide amongst themselves and have pride against one another because of these gifts. And yet, look at God, look at Paul. He's still thankful. He's not like, God, what were you thinking giving them these gifts? Because whether they use them rightly or not, this much is clear. Christ has given them these gifts. They are at work in the Corinthians' midst. For that, Paul's thankful to God. And at least the rich involvement of the Spirit gifting this congregation, this proves as a very sign and a confirmation that Jesus is there, and they are the Lord's, and He's at work. Look at verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, And that's it. The testimony about Christ, that they belong to him, that they testify about Jesus, it's confirmed, it's made sure 
Why? Because of those gifts. Their testimony, their reputation that they stand with Jesus, their proof to the world that they belong to Christ, it's confirmed by the Spirit's working right in their midst, shown namely in these spiritual gifts, these special endowments of God's Spirit to each particular member of the body in Corinth. And it's true, these kind of spiritual gifts work, especially in the early church, worked as particular evidences or proofs or confirmation that God's there, that He's alive and at work in this body. We see it as well in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, for the author there makes the same connection that we're making between the Spirit's work and being a confirming evidence or testimony of the gospel. Here's what he says. This is Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. He says, This great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, like the apostles and stuff. But that word attested there in Hebrews, it's the same word in our text for confirmed in the Greek there. So the salvation word was attested or was it confirmed to us how, he goes on in Hebrews, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How was the gospel witness confirmed among the early church, testified and proven, but by the works of the Spirit of God? And that's still true today, I submit to you, save the Spirit does it a bit differently. In the early church, read it out in the book of Acts, when the Spirit came, He came with these rather sensational gifts primarily. But our season in church history is different. We'll get into a lot of those details later, Lord willing, in the months to come when we get to chapters 12 through 14. But here's the point. Christ is still alive and well, and His Spirit's still at work. And what's the sign of Christ being alive and being in the midst of His people? But that they are indwelt and empowered by His Spirit. They are gifted by Him. Now, in the early church, that might be more evident on its face. Again, with like miracles and healings. But what does it look like to have the Spirit who's still very alive and well at work in the church? What does it look like? What's the, what's the evidence that Christ is in your life? Change. That's what it is. The changed life is the outward proof that the Spirit resides, in it, resides within and is changing you. That's why we can say, Paul does, in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, what can you say about them? These are sons of God. God's sons are born again and dwelt by the Spirit, and He changes them. When We talked about this in Exodus. When God comes to live inside of you, you can't be the same. You just can't. God's sons born again and dwelt by the Spirit. It's true. Be very clear. We are not perfect sons but we are changed ones. So is that testimony true about you? Can, is, is, can people see the change? Now back to Corinthians. The richness of Christ's favor upon them just sounds undeniable given what Paul says next. I mean, how much have they, this church, Corinthians, been blessed in the spiritual graces department? Verse 7 so much so that you are not lacking in any gift. 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he's getting at, what are we getting to in the Christian life? We're looking for Jesus' return. We're looking for that revealing. And how is he going to get us there? Well, for the Corinthians, they weren't lacking in any spiritual gift, special equipment from the Spirit to get them there. I'm just highlighting. How gifted were they? They didn't lack anything. And to be clear, Paul's not talking about here, like he does say to the Ephesians when he says, you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's not talking about just future reward. He's not talking about the future blessings from Christ. He's talking about here to the Corinthians, things, gifts they're enjoying right now, evidenced by the Spirit's empowerment among them. And it's so generous, they seemingly have all the gifts. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, he lists the kind of gifts a few times, actually. But I'll just highlight this one. This is in chapter 12, verse 7 through 11. It says this, To each, speaking about each member, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 12.8 For to one is given through the Spirit, here's a gift, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, and to another Faith, that's another gift, by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the Spirit, and to another, working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. These are all different gifts that he gives to his churches. And he notes, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And it seems like, as he's listing these things, and he gives another list at the end of chapter 12, and that's not even comprehensive, we get the idea that this is just what some of the gifts are. But whatever the gifts are, as he's talking about the Corinthians, that assembly seems to have all of them. You are not lacking in any gift. And I, to be clear, I don't think that was true about every local church in the first century. The Corinthians were especially favored by God in this way. Why? Because they deserved it? No, we know that. Why? Because, oh, they're going to be such good stewards of those gifts and use them so well. Nope, evidently not. Why? Why did God do that? Because he's a gracious God, that's why. I mean, if it was me, you might say like, Oh, those noble Bereans, right? Oh, they were students of the word. And if they would just, if they would get all those gifts, imagine what would happen, right? They would not be led astray, be fighting among themselves. Or, or what about those Thessalonians? Oh, they are so, so strong in their faith. They're persevering under persecution. Give them those kind of gifts, God. Imagine what good your kingdom could be done. Paul doesn't say any of that. He trusts in the Lord, and he sees it's all about grace. He still gives thanks for the Corinthians, even though they're not going to use the gift so well. But the point is, it all is a mercy. The Corinthians didn't deserve these gifts. The Thessalonians didn't deserve them. And neither, neither does Grace Bible Church, frankly. It's up to God. He overflows in grace, and that's just something to behold. When he does it, what do we do? We shouldn't be jealous. We shouldn't be bitter. We should just look and praise you, oh God, that you are merciful to sinners like us. And so does that kind of thankfulness define you? Especially when you think about it, the local church. 
whatever local church it is, whether it's this one because it's yours, or maybe, maybe you're coming from another one. Are you thankful? Or like so many of us, when we think of the local church, what comes first to your mind, maybe not is gratitude, but complaint, right? Criticism. I point you back to verse 4. What did we read about Paul? I give thanks to my God always for you. And to be really clear, that wasn't because the Corinthians were always so pleasing to shepherd. It wasn't because the Corinthians loved him so well back that he thanked God for them. It wasn't because the Corinthians made his life more comfortable and easier. That's not why he thanked God for them. He thanked God for them because God was at work and it was evident in those gifts. So to be thankful like Paul, quite evidently, that means when you think about the church, you got to pull out and take in the full picture, don't you? Got to take in the wide perspective about what Christ is doing. And admittedly, sometimes it's really hard. That's especially hardest when you've been hurt or burned by the local church. We've maybe struggled with that here, let alone if you're coming from another place, especially if it was in town, you're usually coming here because you didn't like what happened there. And it's so easy to be myopic and preoccupied with whatever real failing it might have been. Okay, we're not looking beyond that, but we're, the point is we're not looking only at that. We're looking to see, well, where was Christ at work? I can thank him for that. And that's true even for your elders here. We too, if we focus on only the problems, uh, it's easy to get discouraged. And, and that's so evident in our lives as elders as we made a very intentional, distinct shift in our focus and our elders' meetings. Oh, it was now coming up over 10 years ago. What we discovered was we, get, we meet every week on Tuesdays, and we found that often our weekly meetings, without the proper structure, were being dominated by the problems, you know, the, the crisis counseling situations, the disgruntled members. And the point is, when you focus on those things, it's easy to get discouraged. And so here's what we figured out. You know what you do? You should always ignore those things altogether. Sorry, that's supposed to be funny. No, you can't do that. Okay? Because sometimes we're in that camp. We're the crisis counseling situation, right? That's part of what the church, like we're all sinners and messed up. That's part of what we do. Like we come and care for one another. But it has to be balanced with all that else Christ is doing in the church. And so what did we do? We shifted in our elders' meetings. We still pray for those needs. We still take collective counsel about those needs. But we set aside time to pray for our whole congregation. And so what does that look like? We work through. We used to have the paper directory. Now we pull up the app. And you click the letter for the the member in the directory, but we pray right through the directory. So however many of us are there at a meeting, so there's 10 of us, we take 10 different families and just each man prays for that family in our meeting. We try and do that every single time we get together on Tuesdays. We pray for your spiritual growth. We pray for the salvation of your children. We pray that you would have the wisdom to know how to serve God, that you would have boldness to speak for his name, whether it's at your job or in your family. So we know we need the Spirit's help. And so what happens when we do this? As we've made this shift, three things. And they apply as we just think more broadly together about the church. One, you get a more accurate picture of Christ's church, don't you? 
When you're just focused on all the problems, yeah, it looks like a big problem. But don't miss all the good Christ is doing. And we say that almost every week as we pray together. Yeah, boy, they're struggling. That's hard. Maybe we can help them. But we know, wow, look how God's growing this brother and sister and so forth. God's at work. Number two, we just become so quickly thankful for Christ's work among us because we've looked beyond our own problems. And number three, we see that this is Christ's work, the whole thing. It doesn't rest on your elders bearing the weight only in particular. And we've seen how Christ is growing you and growing you to help brothers and sisters in this church. We can't do it, but Christ is going to do it through you. And that comes if we take in the whole picture and see the grace of God at work. Okay, changing gears a little bit, but thinking about how we're thankful and what that's for. Then we ask, well, how has Grace Bible Church been gifted? Has uh, Grace Bible Church, as he says here, are we not lacking in any spiritual gift? And I would say if in the Corinthian way, that, it, that that's not the case. That is, we don't have all the gifts the Corinthians had. Okay, we don't have the gifts of prophecy or healing, and so forth, because God has a different plan for his church in this age. But again, in the first century, I don't think every church did have that. Not every church had the gift of apostleship in the first century, outside of the apostles that were overseeing them, maybe from out of town. But the principle still holds true that for every local assembly, you are not lacking in any gift. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit in His wisdom and generosity gifts the individual members of that body just as He pleases. In that way, no gift is missing that you need to follow after Jesus in your local church. Now, how does this work? Because as you compare local churches, we're not all the same. You know, some, some churches have different strengths, don't they? Some of you might be, whoa, they got a lot of great teachers there. That's awesome. Or we'll look at other churches and be like, man, they got all kinds of service and administration gifts. Praise God. And we're also like, well, why don't we have a few more or something like this? But know this, for each church, for that season, God has gifted them with just the gift they need to honor Jesus. If, if each member is doing their work, right? Paul writes this to the local church in Ephesus from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, note, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. So if you're part of this church, you've been gifted for it. And so you need to leverage how Christ has gifted you. There's two parts to that. One, he's gifted you with gifts so you can serve and help us be built up in love towards Christ. But two, he's also gifted you one another in the church to help you walk with Christ. You got to leverage that too. And so what's the point? How does this fit together? You need the local church, whatever one it is. You will not be walking with Christ without it. I mean, imagine the inner workings of a finely made clock or, or like one of those antique watches. And you can open it up and see all the gears fit together. You see all the tiny cogs on each wheel. I mean, you might be, you could take out one gear. You might be the finest looking gear. You're not making anyone else keep time walking after Jesus. Leverage your gifts, get into the clock, serve the body. Third, know how Christ keeps you. 
We take courage because we embrace how he now sees us. We take courage because we're taking up the gifts he's given us. And we take courage because we know how he's going to keep us. Verses 8 and 9. Let's look first at verse 8. It begins 1 Corinthians 1, 8. Who, and so that's referencing back, referring to Jesus Christ, he will, Jesus will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredible. He will do it. He will sustain you. The idea behind this verb is he's going to make you firm. He's going to make you solid, unshakable, unmovable. He's going to keep you firm all the way to the end because he's going to keep your faith all the way to the end until that day of Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' job for us, guaranteed. Repeatedly, our Lord has made promises just like this, right? John chapter 6. Verses 37 and 39, our Lord said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or try this promise, John chapter 10, verse 28. I gave them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because he promised. It's guaranteed. He will sustain you. What is your confidence? Your faith is going to make it tomorrow morning. Next week. Ten years from now. What's your confidence that your faith is going to stick? Is it because of your own spiritual resolve? Is it because your your faith is just so convinced you've been walking with Jesus so long? Is it because you're just sure, I'm never going to doubt, I'm never going to struggle, I'm never going to be sorely tempted or stumble? No. And if it is, you're going to fall pretty hard. Here's where your confidence, though, can lie and be unshaken on Jesus Christ. Because in His hands, will He not keep you to the end? Oh, and he will. Even to that final day, as we continue back to verse 8, we see the, the end result of this. Who will sustain you to the end to be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless. I love the way the Legacy Bible captures it. Beyond reproach. Take all the reproaches, all of those sins to be thrown at you in that final day, and they just bounce off. No marks. No accusation could rise on that day to finally sully your character. No allegation could be brought to ever stick to you. No one will believe it, and certainly Christ won't. You know, I picture in those old weddings, you know, they had that comment, if anyone has reason that these two should not be wed. And I had that fear, you know, as you're getting married, and you're like, do they still do that? Because I'm afraid somebody in the back is going to be like, I know who Rick really is. He shouldn't be with her. And, and you fear, like I think we fear on that final day, we're going to get up there. It seems like everything's going okay. And then somebody's going to say from the back, I know who Rick really is. But the accusation's not going to stick. Even though they can say true things about your past, it still won't stick. 
No allegation will be brought. And it's, why is that? It's not because of your squeaky clean record that you had. It's because you've got a faithful God who will make you blameless on that day. Why do we know this? Because he promised. And here's the thing. The father's in on it too. And he stakes his name, his own reputation on it. Look at verse 9. See, verse 8, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ will sustain you. Now we turn to the Father in verse 9. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is faithful, and that means his faithfulness never falls. Now understand, this does not mean that we can be ourselves faithless, unbelieving, unmoved spiritually, unrepenting, and think, oh yeah, of course, I'm still going to heaven. You know, I believed once. We say, once saved, always saved, right? I got baptized. God's letting me into heaven, whether I keep believing in him or not. God's faithfulness is way better than that. He's faithful to keep you to the end because you know how? He's going to keep you believing. He's going to keep you turning from sin. You might try and harden your heart, and you might for a while, but he won't give up, and he's faithful, and he always breaks in. And we see this in part because of what is noted here. He is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son. And to be clear, calling here is not a mere invitation. Now, sometimes calling in the New Testament is that. It's the generic gospel invitation that goes out to anyone who will listen. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. But that's not the kind of calling we're talking about when you've been called into fellowship. You've been brought in, not to the principal's office, but into the king's throne room. And he says, you're mine. And when he's done that, no one's getting you out of there. Because that calling is the irresistible work of the Spirit, changing your heart, drawing you in in faith. We see it actually in this text. If you look down to verse 26, just to look ahead, to steal some thunder, Lord willing, from a couple weeks to come. Here's how Paul talks about calling. Verse 26, he says, For consider your calling. And notice, it's not this generic invitation. But he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but God did what? He chose. And when he's chosen, you're coming. That's what this calling is. Paul explains it further in Romans chapter 8, this golden chain of redemption. And it's an unbreakable chain. I love this. Romans 8, 30. Those whom God predestined, that is, he predetermined before history began who his saved, redeemed will be before the foundation of the world. Those whom he predestined, guess what he does with them? That same group, he calls them. And so when he calls them, that same group, he justifies them, declares them righteous by faith in Christ. And that same group, those he also has glorified. And that's what's astonishing. He will use the past tense because it's such a sure thing. We call it the unbreakable chain of sovereign grace. If he predestined you, he calls you. And when he calls you, he justifies you. And when he justifies you, he will certainly glorify you, and nobody can get in the way. That's exactly what Paul's getting at when he says in verse 9, by whom you were called into this fellowship. It's effective. And if he started the work, he's going to finish it. That's where our surety stands. 
That's where our assurance lies. It must rise and fall on the faithfulness of our God. Will he keep his word or will he want? He will. And the Father and Son do that together with the effective work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that. But, but just to put this verse together, we heard this already. This is John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he adds, right? My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit, they're in cahoots to get you to that final day. Blameless. Because he is faithful. But we understand, we realize too, how he keeps us. And what I mean by that is, God doesn't keep us safe in Christ by just hiding us away in some heavenly deposit box to never be seen again. You know, we kind of wonder that. Have you wondered that? About, well, why, why you know, there's going to be a rapture one day. We're going to be sucked up to God in heaven. Why doesn't he just do that when we come to faith? Because I don't want to walk in this life at times. But here's the way he's going to keep us. He's not going to shield us from all risk. He's not going to shield you from all temptation, struggle, and hardship. He doesn't promise to keep you from all things that might actually potentially discourage your faith. He's going to keep you through them. I recall as a kid saving up all of my birthday and Christmas money to one year buy, finally, George Brett's 1975 Topps rookie card. Okay, if you grew up in Kansas City like I did in the 80s, George Brett was your baseball idol because Patrick Mahomes hadn't come around yet. But anyway... And as a collectible item, if you're not aware, you want to keep those things very pristine. As baseball cards, they're easy to nick the corners, and their value can diminish very quickly. You want to keep it safe and pristine. So what did I do? I had my card, still have it, in a plastic case, and then I had it in a plastic box under my bed that never saw the light of day, ever. I didn't even get it out to look at it. Well, sometimes I think we feel like our faith is very fragile like that. Like, I hope it doesn't have to come out of the box because it's, it's really weak and it might give way. You might feel like, and you might be right, that your faith of yourself is very fragile. But the God who gave it to you and the God who promised it, he is not fragile. And actually, he's putting you out there to work your faith muscle, which is going to mean it's like we work through this letter it's going to mean being confronted with maybe how your faith is lacking. But he's telling you this to strengthen it in the end. That's why Peter can talk about like this. It's a different context, but a similar idea. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he tells that church there, he says, or these churches, these Christians, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and by the way, it is, you are grieved by various trials. There are just griefs as we walk in this world. But why? why? Why is this necessary? What's this for? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, that he gave you, by the way, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to test your faith to expose its impurities, but in the end, not to weaken it, but to strengthen it, to strengthen your hope in what he's doing. And we might object and say, God, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can handle that test. 
I've fallen before. I don't know if I can do this now. And that's kind of the point. That's what faith is. You kind of say, I can't do it. But you know what? You can and you promised. And that's all the difference. That's where assurance lies, not on our faithfulness, but on His. And it's that foundation, that solid foundation of true love and faithfulness that allow us to hear the, not only the good news, but some of the bad news, so to speak, in this book. Because 1 Corinthians is just so wide-ranging and all of the things it's going to confront us about, Lord willing. You're going to hear about, and just to kind of round out this introduction into 1 Corinthians, what kind of things are we going to be confronted about in this letter? You're going to be confronted about factions and cliques in the church. You're going to be exposed to the bankruptcy of the world's knowledge that we are all susceptible to. You're going to be confronted about trying to build your life as straw that's going to be burned up one day. You're going to be confronted about tribalism. You're going to be confronted about your sexual morals. You're going to be given instructions about church discipline. Oh, what about lawsuits and greed? You know what? Homosexuality is addressed in 1 Corinthians. We're, we're told how to think about marriage, divorce, singleness as a Christian, how to handle personal convictions and preferences in the church. If that doesn't divide a church in some sense, I don't know what will. What, about, what does it mean to be a stumbling block? What are men's and women's roles? Does that apply today or what? How should we think about worship? What about the Lord's table? What about spiritual gifts and their abuse? What about the gospel? Does it really matter if Jesus historically rose from the dead or not? Oh, you bet it does. And he'll teach us about that. We're going to hear about regular giving, how to care financially for other Christians and other churches. It's all here in 1 Corinthians. What's the point? You're going to have ample opportunity to be exposed and confronted in your sin. And if you look to yourself, also potentially very discouraged of all the ways you don't measure up. But here's the thing. Yes, you are weak, but he is not. He is faithful. When your faith feels weak, he is not, and his faithfulness hasn't changed. To put this together, I think this prayer from the end of 1 Thessalonians summarizes it so well. He says, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's kind of what we're dealing with. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he has this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's our confidence. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray together. Father, we just look to you now. And we confess that our faithfulness is lacking. Our strength of faith is weak. We, we have done nothing to deserve your mercy, and that's why we so rejoice to find that it's grace, that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. And as those who have been so given so much, given your spirit, given your word, uh, even beyond the church of Corinth. They didn't have your word like we do. And, uh, may we be faithful, faithful stewards of this. Uh, but we, we just confess right off, we can't do it of our own. We need you. Do that for your namesake in this church you've bought by your blood. Amen.